All right. If you will open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> now, I would assume that if we start at 10.30, we quit about 11.30. Is that about right? And so I'm gonna, I always go by the church clock, and your church clock says it's 5 after 10. <laughs> so I'm going to love this. I've got a long time, and it's been a long time since I had this much time to preach. Luke chapter 10, we have the familiar story of uh, the Good Samaritan. And so I want us to look at this uh, this morning. It begins in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, first of all, we are dealing with somebody who is not a novice in religion. He is an expert in the law. Uh, not necessarily does it mean the law of Moses, but that's probably what's intended since that's the law, both religious and civil, for the Jews. Uh, so we could say he's a lawyer, or we could just say he's a religious guy who really knows the law. But either way, we're not dealing with somebody who doesn't know what the Scriptures say. Also, he is not asking Jesus a question because he wants to know the answer. He is asking Jesus a question because he wants to test him. Also, he is, uh, the story, the, the text begins with a really big theological question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, and quickly moves into just a very practical story of roadside service. The question itself is not without merit. We all would want to know what we do to inherit eternal life, or what must I do to be saved. It's not like it's the only place in the Bible that a question like that is ask, but being a Jew, and given the way he words it, it's possible that he envisions that even if he, let's assume he was sincere, that he's envisioning that the whole and the entirety of eternal life rests upon me. What must I do? Uh, that would be easy for us to think, uh, easier to think about a Jew doing that because they have the law and they've got all these things they've got to do, and so he might well be asking about all these laws, all these things that we're told, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus then says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he puts the question back on him and tells him, you're an expert in the law in essence, so what do you think is the answer to your question? And he says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So he answers rightly, and he cites two very fundamental commandments, which, as you may recall, Jesus in another place, when he is asked what, uh, about the great commandments, these are the ones that are cited there. So we're, we're, at, we're on the right spot, the right target here, uh, for the answer to the question. If he had been asking out of sincerity and genuineness that he really wanted to know, then he would have stopped 
right here when, when uh, the answer was given and said, I can't do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, your strength and everything. I can't do that. I just will have to beg for mercy. Because you and I can't do it either. There's never been a day on planet Earth when we could say, Lord, I've got this one conquered. I love you with my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole body, my whole strength. I am completely yours. I love you with all that is in me. Now, we aspire to that, and we try that, and we want it to be that way, but by the very fact we come in here, and we acknowledge in song and in our activities, our prayers, that we are frail people, we make mistakes, we are weak, we are acknowledging we don't love Him that way. But notice what happens. Even though that's what that's, that the lawyer should have said, I can't do that. I'll have to throw myself on the mercy of God, live the best I can, and that's all I can do, because I cannot live this command to perfection. But what does he do? It says then, to justify himself, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now notice, two commandments, one regarding loving God with the whole of your being, and the other, loving your neighbor. He wants to justify himself, so he bypasses the first one. It's like saying, I'm good on the first one. God and I are good. So tell me about the neighbor part. Tell me about the neighbor part. So Jesus accommodates him. He accommodates him. And he tells a story relative to the neighbor part. Not in totality, but at least in the practical aspects of the story. Now I'm trusting that you didn't come here today saying, okay, I'm good on the first one. I've got that conquered. Me and God, we're good. He knows I love Him with my entire being all the time, 24 hours a day. And we're not going to digress and say, okay, tell me who my neighbor is. How do I need to accomplish this? So I'm trusting we're, we're not thinking that way. But we do want to study and think about what Jesus says, so we're going to look at the part he addresses, which has to do with the neighbor. So, beginning in verse 30, we have the story. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I'm guessing that the story made the lawyer squirm. 
Because, in fact, he didn't really ask Jesus something that, uh, maybe I should say it this way, Jesus didn't really tell him anything he didn't already know. What he did was he told him what he wasn't doing. And I would say that the vast majority of the time, I'm, not, I'm tempted to say 90%, but I don't know what percentage you would give it, we don't struggle with knowing what God wants us to do. We struggle with doing what God wants us to do. Now, there may be an occasion once in a while where we're uncertain as to what God commanded regarding something. Or it may be a situation where we have to take the principles of Scripture and apply them to determine how God wants us to respond. So I'm not saying we never have any questions, but I would say for most of us who've spent most of our life in church, when it comes down to how we ought to treat other people, when it comes down to our interaction with folks, or what kind of person we ought to be on the job, or what kind of person we ought to be in the home, we have a pretty good idea what God says about that. So it's not so much the knowing part as the doing part. And Jesus didn't tell him, you need to know this. He, in essence, was telling him, you need to do this. So gave an example of people doing something. Now, we... The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles in length. And so the people are going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the terrain is one that is hilly, and the people knew it was infested with thieves and robbers. It had that kind of reputation. So when Jesus tells the story, there's no reason why the people would... uh, It's not like they would say, boy, that can't be true. They would know that's true, that when you venture down this road, there's a possibility you might... Uh, you might be attacked, Uh, there might be outlaws who will rob you or something like that. So it's not a far-fetched story. We have three different individuals besides the man laying beside the road. We have three individuals. We have a priest. Priests were divided into 24 courses or orders. And the priest would serve in the temple two one-week courses at a time. And so the individual, the priest, may well be leaving Jerusalem, having done his service and going to Jericho, and from there maybe some place. We don't know that to be the case, but that's why a priest might be on the road. Uh, the Levite is of the tribe of Levi. And Levites are not priests. They are, however, helpers to priests. And so the priest has all of these details and things, sacrifices and things to be done, and Levites would assist or be helpers to the priest in accomplishing all of that. So he may well have had his time in uh, Jerusalem doing that. Don't know, just a possibility. And then the odd person in this story is the Samaritan. And the reason he is truly an odd person is because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. And it goes back several centuries. The, uh, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and Judah and Jerusalem, the south of that, that was the southern kingdom. But Israel is conquered by the Assyrians, thousands taken into captivity, and the Assyrians left some of their own people in the land as a way of sort of controlling it and everything. And then century after century after century, there is intermarriage between the Jews and the foreigners in the land. 
So by the time you come to, well, well before you come to Jesus' day, but by Jesus' day, the Samaritans are half-breeds, and that's the way the Jews look at them. The southern kingdom, when it was conquered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, it did not, even though there were some taken off into captivity, there were some who came back, but the southern kingdom was very dedicated to not intermarrying. That's not to say that it didn't happen, it's only to say that as a, as a people, they were dedicated to not intermarrying. So in the south then, you have true-blood Jews, and in the north of there, in the Samaria, you have half-breeds. But that's not even the whole of it. The Samaritans didn't believe in the Old Testament, as the Jews did, except for the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they accepted that. They didn't accept the rest of it. Not only that, but since they couldn't go to Jerusalem like true Jews to the temple on the appointed days, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So instead of just simply being half-breeds, which to the Jew was bad enough, they're also heretics. And any devout Jew would not cross Samaria. For example, if you were going from the south up to Galilee in the north, you would not cross Samaria. You'd go around it. Which is one of the things that makes the story of Jesus in Samaria, talking to the Samaritan woman, all the more remarkable. So you have stories that have accumulated of, of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And lo and behold, if the man who stops is not a Samaritan, and obviously it is assumed that the man along the road, uh, given the location of where we are, Jerusalem and Jericho, that he is, he is a Jew. Now, it is usually at this point that um, we might stop and discuss uh, the three men and why the two didn't stop and everything, and we'd offer these excuses. Uh, we'd say, well... Uh, one would, might have said, well, you know, I don't have time to stop. I've got appointments and so on. Or one might have said, uh, this is really inconvenient, interrupts my schedule, I'm not prepared to help. Uh, he could have said something like that. Or maybe he said, you know, if I stop and help, maybe these guys will come back and do to me what they did to him. Anyway, we could go on making excuses. You've got to remember, first of all, as far as this isn't a real story, in that we don't know that it actually happened. Okay. Second of all, it doesn't make any difference what the excuses are. We could come up with who doesn't. Excuses wouldn't spare or save or explain the behavior of the priest and the Levite. So, I've already said all I'm going to about the excuses. So you can think of them on your own, but it doesn't really serve us any purpose here. The reason that the priest didn't stop and the reason the Levite didn't stop is because they lacked compassion. And the reason the Samaritan stopped is because he had compassion. Look at verse 30 again. Uh, excuse me, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Something inside him was moved. So I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about Compassion. Compassion is when you feel something. It's when you feel 
something. I, I don't know, but what our media-crazed world, much of which we are grateful for because it keeps us informed about a lot of things, has in some ways contributed to a certain kind of callousness because we see things constantly, all the time, almost overwhelmed by them to the point that seeing it is not, doesn't move us quite the same way. At least I think it's, it's possible that there's a danger in that. In the story, the priest doesn't stop, even though he looked at him, and the Levite doesn't stop, even though he looked at him. It says in Matthew 9 that Jesus looked out over the crowd and he had compassion for them because he saw them as helpless and harassed people like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't want you to jump ahead of me, so I'm going to go ahead and say this right now. I'm not talking about doing anything. I'm just talking about the way you feel. It would be sad indeed if we watched what's happening in the Ukraine and we didn't feel anything. If we watched, watched the masses of refugees, mostly women and children, and the, all the tears and then the bodies and all the things we see there, if we saw it and we didn't feel anything. Now, I'm going to assume you probably feel something, but also included in that is probably a, a, almost a kind of helplessness that, that what can I do about it? I'm so far away. And clearly we can pray, and I trust that you do that like I do. But the point is, we don't want to reach a place in life where we don't feel. We don't feel something. Now, let's, let's take this a little closer to home. On many a street corner, you'll find a man or woman holding a cardboard sign that says homeless or work for food or whatever. I don't expect to stop at everyone. I, I don't expect you to stop every time. You see, my point is, what do we feel when we, or do we feel anything when we see somebody who is in need? Now, if you say, well, I happen to know that person. They're not really in need. That's a scam. Well, that's possible. That's possible. But let's assume you don't know anything about them, and maybe, uh, maybe they, they haven't been out there regularly, and you see them. Do you feel for people who are in need? It's not whether they deserve it. It has nothing to do with whether they qualify or whether they meet your criteria or whether they can do anything in return to you. If that was the case, then God, we'd be hopeless. Nothing would have ever happened with us. We didn't deserve His compassion. We didn't, hadn't done anything to earn or merit His compassion. We didn't meet any qualifications or any criteria. His compassion comes because that's the way He is. And we're supposed to be like Him. So we're not talking about doing anything. We're just talking about let's be sure that we still feel for people in need. Can't always help them. Don't have resources to. May not even be wise to stop in certain situations. But do we care? Do we care about people in need? 
may not be the same color, may not be religious, may not be a churchgoer, may not dress the way you know, we think is appropriate, but do we care about people in need? The Bible says Jesus would just look out all these people and he felt compassion for them. He said, I want you to be like me. Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't feed everybody. We have some occasions where he healed. We have some occasions where he fed people. But he didn't feed every hungry person. He didn't heal every person who was ill, diseased. The point is, we should feel. It should matter to us that somebody is in need. Then that brings us to the part that is not quite as comfortable. Compassion does something. Now the problem is in knowing knowing what, what to do. And you can't always do something in a physical kind of way. We're not always, I may not have the ability to be of help to whatever your need is. I may not have the resources to be of help. Maybe praying is all I can do. So I'm not, I'm not here saying that we need to always render physical aid. But do we care? Do we care enough to do what we can do? Look back at, uh, at verse 33. Notice the, notice the level of involvement here. The Samaritans he traveled along, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So it is costing him something. He then put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. Then the next day took out two silver coins, gave those to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you. He's involved. One of the things about, about compassion is when it moves us to do something. It may cost something. It may require some real involvement. I hope the reason we don't help people isn't because we don't want to get involved. I, I would hate to stand before God and He asked me about things and say, well, I just didn't want to get involved. He expects us to be wise. He expects us to be discerning. He expects us to to do what we can. He doesn't expect more of us than is possible for us to do. But He does expect us to care. And He does expect us to do what we can. Maybe praying is all that I can do. Right now in the Ukraine, praying is all I, I know that I can do. I certainly don't have money or resources or anything to respond in that way. So I, I do what I can do, and I really care. I read a story of this little girl who was late for supper. And as mom do, she sort of scolded her for being late getting home and asked her what she had been doing. She said, well, I stopped. I stopped. Amy, she had a crash on her bicycle and it broke. And her mother said, well, you don't know any." You don't know anything about bicycles. You don't know anything about fixing bicycles. He said, I didn't stop to fix the bicycle. I stopped to help her cry. 
Sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes the only thing we can do is put arm around somebody and, and help them cry. So I'm not giving a list of things and telling you how you ought to do things. That's not my point. I am concerned that, that the church, Christian people, not lose their sense of truly caring about the world. And I think, there's a, I think there is a strong temptation. It's the characteristic of our world, and things that are in our world tend to be somewhat true of people in the church because we live in the world. And that is that we form a kind of criteria for who we will help. Or we come up with our own kind of excuses of why we are not willing to help. Of all the people on the planet, those who ought to care the most about their fellow human beings ought to be Christian people. And the ones who ought to be willing to help where they can, when they can, to do whatever they can, however small or large and whatever is wisest, ought to be Christian people. We now have and have had for the last 25 years, maybe 30 years now, what are called parachurch organizations. You ever hear of that? Parachurch organizations. You look it up, Google it, everything can be Googled. You can look it up and there are, there are hundreds and hundreds, even to the thousands of parachurch organizations. They began back sometime, I think, in the 1970s, but they really gathered momentum by the 1980s. And what they are, are they are organizations, sometimes they advertise themselves as a Christian organization, but they don't necessarily have to do that. But they are private organizations that do good things in areas they felt like church didn't. So if the church is, let's say a group of people said, we'd like to go to inner city and we'd like to work in the inner city and help people down there and we'd love for the church to back this and support us and so forth and it'd be a church program and uh, the leader of the church got together and decided for some reason or another no we're not going to do that there's all kinds of liabilities and everything and all that may be true but these people decided we'll go do it ourselves so they went down and they bought a building downtown and they work out of that building uh, a non-profit kind of thing and they minister to people now we have thousands of those in all kinds of areas whether it's to, um, has to do with uh, addiction or um, pregnancy or abortion or anything. It doesn't matter what it is. We have thousands of those functioning in our country and they exist because people believed church. I'm not, any church. Church wouldn't do it. And if you can't get it done within church, let's go do it and I have our own organization. That is a sad tale on the American church. I would hate to think that, and I may, will say, I am impressed by your benevolence and your outreach. This isn't intended to be some kind of personal thing to you. I just am concerned that church at large, that Christian people, 
certainly not all of them, but some of them, grow calloused with the way things are and lose their sensitivity to the needs of others and create a kind of a qualifying list or a criteria. We'll only help people that do this or look like this or have that or whatever it is. That's not, that's not Christian. Now that doesn't mean we have an open book to anything. We certainly are to exercise discretion and wisdom. But we certainly are to be involved. But if those two, feeling it and doing something about it, if those don't create some unrest in you, we'll try number three. Compassion, the compassion you show, reflects your relationship to God. Do you remember the story at the end of Matthew 25 that Jesus tells about sheep on the right and goats on the left? Here, this is a judgment scene, he says. Sheep on the right. He says to the sheep on the right, Welcome, come in. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you looked after me. They said, well, when did we see you? When did, when did this happen? He said, inasmuch as you did it unto one of these least, you did it to me. Then to those on the left, same thing. I was sick, didn't check on me. I didn't have any clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was hungry, didn't feed me. Well, when did we see you in those, that situation? And as much as you did it not to one of these least, you did it not to me. These go away into eternal punishment. There's nothing said there about baptism or how much money I give at church or none of those kinds of things that we place a lot of emphasis on at times. It is all about my treatment of my fellow man and that my relationship in, and response to their need has a direct bearing on the way God sees me. Let's read a couple of places uh, together. If you will turn over to 1 John chapter 3. And verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Now, it sounds like to me that if you have and there is need and you really don't seem to care, do anything about that, that affects your relationship to God. Now, in this instance, he talks about it being brothers, so we'd be talking about Christians. I'd hate to think we had fellow Christians that we, we didn't have any concern for, their needs. Although, I must say, I think as a general rule, we do better in that. Then if you look over in the little book of James... James chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, and does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I mean, how many scriptures would we have to read before we became impressed with the fact that how we relate to the needs of others has a direct bearing on and statement about our view and our relationship with God? I don't think they would have written this if, they, if it wasn't that we should, it should matter to us about the needs of other people. Now I want to break from this for just a moment to give you something to think about, and then I'll close. Is it possible that when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, that he intended, he intended to give an emphasis that we have missed? Because what we do is we look at the three guys and, and as we're tempted to do, say, well, you know, I don't want to be that one, I don't want to be this one, I sure want to be the third one. Well, we look at it from that way. He even asked the question to the lawyer, which of these three really was the neighbor? But suppose Jesus told the story. Sometimes parables have meanings beyond the obvious. Suppose Jesus told us the story to emphasize one other idea. That we are the man laying along the road. Instead of putting ourselves in the position of the other, those three, who two didn't stop, one who did, we're actually the individual laying beside the road. And the one who does stop provides limitless, limitless care. Is there anything he didn't do that was necessary? I don't think you can think of anything. Bandaged up his wounds, poured oil and wine on them, put him on his own uh, animal, his bird, took him to an inn, paid for that, said he'd come back. I mean, he did, he did, he went up and above and beyond. He did the limitless thing because the person in the road is desperate. What if that's you and me? We're the desperate ones. And lo and behold, the very one who rendered aid, who came to the rescue and saved the man, is the very one we would reject. The last person we would expect to render aid, to be of any help, is the very one who does it all. Now, one last thing. In verse 31, it says that the priest happened to be going down, and when he saw the man, he passed by. Verse 32, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by. Verse 33, the Samaritan who traveled along, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity. Now, if I were to ask you, did the three men all see the same thing? You would say, well, sure. It says they did. It says three times, saw, saw, saw. They all saw the same thing. But if you think about it, you'll know they didn't all see the same thing. Now the first two, I don't know what they saw. They may have seen inconvenience, they may have seen fear, they may have seen interruption. I don't know what it is they saw, but they didn't see the same thing as the Samaritan. So, this is what 
we will conclude this. What you do is determined by what you see. And what you see is determined by what you are. What you do day after day after day with humanity is determined by what you see. And what you see is determined by what you are. When you look and see a person who's a different color than you, you will do something. You will think something. You will take some kind of action, whatever it is. But what you do is the result of what you see. And what you see is the result of what you are. In our day and time, people get in trouble, they get caught doing something they shouldn't, and they say, and they go before the cameras, you know, and they never call it sin. Nobody ever calls anything sin. And they say, well, it was a misstep, it was an error in judgment, or uh, just a mistake, or whatever. And then they'll, they'll say, but that's not the real me. That's not the real me. Let me tell you, if you did it, it's the real you. Now we understand if you don't like the real you and you don't like that real you and you want to change, we understand that. We've all been there. But if you did it, that's the real you. What we do is determined by what we see. What we see is determined by what we are. When we look at a person who's in need... We will either see, we'll have, we'll, something will come to mind. It'll either be, uh, oh, they're lazy or they're good for nothing or whatever. Or we'll, we'll be moved with compassion. That was the difference on the road. They all saw the same thing. But they didn't all see the same thing. One of them saw a human being in need. And what he saw was a result of who he was. That's the way God looks at us. He sees us. What did God do? He did everything for us. Why did he do everything for us? Giving his own son. Because of the way he saw us. And the reason he saw us that way is because that's the way he is. And then he came and showed us that in the flesh, and he said, I want you to be like me. When you look, you will do according to what you see, but you'll only see according to what you are. It's why he spent so much time talking about the heart. Everything issues from the heart. That's what you are. What you say, your words, they reveal your heart. What you do reveals your heart. I really believe, I genuinely believe, the judgment is about the heart. I don't think God's going to line up and say, okay, you told this many lies, or you did this many times, you did that many times. I think He's going to know your heart. What kind of heart do you have? You have a heart for Him? Then you've got a heart for people. Now, can you imagine what the world would be like, what the church would be like if the community saw the church as a place of enormous caring. However that was displayed, what did they were able to do? Not all able to do the same thing. 
or even as individuals, let's just say we're not talking about the church, we're just talking about us in our daily lives with our neighbors and friends and living in the community, but people would know you're a Christian. They said, nobody cares like a Christian. Maybe the most they can do is come and hug you, but they'll come and hug you. I just believe that is what you see in the church of the New Testament. And I believe that's what the Lord called us to do.